Welcome to the Ohio Humanities Podcast, where we engage real issues in real conversations with scholars and experts from across the state. In this series, Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters, we explore the topic of civic and electoral participation, using history and jurisprudence to illuminate contemporary issues. This is Ron Bryant. I am your host of Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters. This is Ohio Humanities. We deal with real issues and real conversations. This is Ron Bryant, and I want to welcome you to another segment of Perfecting Democracy and Why It Matters. We continue to explore voting rights and examine citizen participation during this podcast series, and we're featuring scholars and experts from across the state of Ohio. In our last podcast, we discussed the Electoral College, its constitutional understanding. Does the United States still need the system, and has it outlived its utility? But on this segment, we're going to be speaking with Christy Weininger and Dustin McLaughlin. Today's topic is going to be contested elections. Now, let me tell you a little bit about our scholars for today. Christy graduated from Otterbein University with her undergraduate degree in history and earned her master's in history from the University of Toledo. She also spent a semester abroad at Roehampton Institute in Wimbledon. That's where she studied local history. And uh, she's currently the executive director of the Hayes Presidential Library and Museums. Dustin received his PhD in policy history from Bowling Green State University, his MA from BGSU, and his BA from Indiana University in Kokomo. He has spent 10 years of his experience as a college history instructor. He's currently the historian at the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Library. Welcome to this program. Thank you. Thank you. Again, we're talking about contested elections. Ohio is often referred to as the mother of presidents and has sent more presidents to the White House than any other state except Virginia. However, there has not been one Ohioan in the White House for nearly a century. What is it about Ohio that allowed the state to produce so many presidents and why has it been a century since an Ohioan has won the presidency? Who wants to go first? I guess I will. The issue of Ohio sort of being the mother of the presidents is, is kind of interesting in that it's really a segment there where Ohioans are, are elected in rapid succession, right, during that Gilded Age era, Reconstruction and Gilded Age. And the reason why it happens is because at that time, there were really three states that were the swing states of the era, uh, which happened to be Ohio, New York, and Indiana. And Ohio really had a big portion of the electoral votes that both parties were vying for. Uh, New York is also very big, and the Democratic Party uh, tended to get their presidential candidate from New York. And Ohio, and for whatever reason, the Republican Party tended to get it from Ohio. Uh, so, and, and when these parties, by the way, sort of move away from that, they, they tend to lose the election. So you do have this rapid secession from Hayes, and we can make the argument for Grant, although I think Grant is a, is a separate and unique case, but from Hayes to McKinley, where you have an Ohioan sort of um, headlining the ticket. Um, I know Benjamin Harrison is probably seen more as a guy from Indiana at the time, but Indiana was also a swing state. 
And if you he look at born the, in Ohio, Benjamin was born in Ohio. That's right. He's one of ours that we count in that eight. <laughs> yeah, we get into All this. Right. We can get into this argument about like how we count these Ohioans and, and what 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 consists as an Ohio president. But uh, yeah, he's he's in Ohio. He's kind of like a two for one, really. You got Ohio and Indiana, the guy, right? So you can get both those swing states, hopefully. And then the uh, vice presidents. Uh, often came from the state that would offset the one that was uh, that was not the one on the on the main guy on the ticket. So you know, like with Hayes, you'd have William Wheeler, and you know Tilden, you had uh, Thomas Hendricks from Indiana. So you often tried to get these three states somehow, one way or the other, a combination of these states that would allow you to win the election. And so I I think the the truth the the, the I guess the, the the real truth of it is is that it was an electoral college battle. Uh, and so Ohio becomes a state that is important. And so you get that. Now, as far as the second part of your question of why there hasn't been one for nearly a century, I don't know. I, maybe I'll pass that on to Christy. She can give her ideas on, on why Ohio hasn't been able to uh, to do it since. Well, it, it's, it's not like nobody's trying. Uh, you know, Kusick <laughs> uh, would have loved to have become president of the United States. So, um, but I, you know, I absolutely agree with everything that Dustin has said. But I, I think there was something and he's exactly right in the electoral college and kind of the strategy of the parties at the time and where their headlining candidates were coming from. But I also think there was something unique going on in Ohio at that time. Uh, a lot of people were moving into Ohio from somewhere else. Uh, Ohio was a relatively new state and people were coming here because they were adventurous. They were bold. They were, you know, they wanted to be out here on the Western frontier of the country. And I think those are characteristics that make great leaders, you know, people admired those qualities in people, and they were kind of the movers and shakers. Um, in addition to Ohio president, you had, you know, other people who were, um, you know, Ohioans were members of Lincoln's cabinet, you had Ohioans who were playing big roles um, as Civil War generals. So Ohioans tend to be leaders. Wonderful. Now we're talking about contested elections. These are nothing new in the United States. WhiteHouse.gov calls the 1876 election between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden the most fiercely disputed election in American history. We might be able to say there's another one that's been disputed <laughs> a little more recent. What were the central issues leading to the election and what made that particular election so contentious? In a way, the, the, the contentious nature of it it takes place, you know, after the votes, right? After the votes come in, and then that's where the contention really starts to kick off. Uh, but the central issues leading up to it are, are ones that really didn't have a whole lot of difference between the two candidates. You had um, civil service reform, and you had the issue of hard and soft money, and then the contested topic of the Southern Home Rule. Uh, what you see with both candidates is really an answer in the same direction for all three. And so when Hayes is and the Republicans are trying to find a, a unique way to sort of separate themselves from the other candidate, it often came down to the questions of the bloody shirts. You know, uh, if you fought for the North, you should vote Republican. 
as well as this idea of, uh, well, this is a moment where the, a big question of parochial and Catholic schools and, and Republicans kind of wanted to play that card as well to try to create some separation from the Democratic Party. When the results start to come in and, and it looks as if Tilden had actually won uh, the, well, you know, technically he does win the popular vote. It comes down to this question of a number of close states in the South that a number of Republicans, not to get into the details, but there's this argument over who started the whole thing off, but a number of Republicans decided that they needed to halt the return in those three states, uh, which were South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana. And to take a closer look at those three states and try to figure out basically from both parties how their side had won. And it just turned out that if Hayes could somehow claim all three of those states, he would win by one electoral vote. So the real contention comes in the months after the election night, as the returns are sort of coming in, when both sides have to fight (laughs) and look into the returns and determine what was a legal vote, what votes were perhaps suppressed, what votes were perhaps illegal, and to determine uh, what the real outcome of these three states were. As as you guys just had that show on the Electoral College, it really came down to who could get all those electoral votes and take that electoral lead. And it really was, uh, you know, it it was contentious. And I I think now, you know, of course, we, Dustin and I have worked here for Hayes Presidential for a number of years, and we've been telling the story. Uh, but it's of particular interest now because of the current situation that we're in. So I think people can relate to a little bit more what that contention is like, what that anxiousness is like to not have a clear winner on election day. Um, you know, the country was really concerned about how this was going to be resolved. Um, you know, the electoral commission was appointed by Congress. Congress didn't really kind of was just constitutional crisis. Congress really didn't know how to resolve the three states where it wasn't clear who the winner was. And so this electoral gets commission gets appointed and both sides, Republican and Democrat, in fact, Democrats really push for an electoral commission to be formed. The weird twist to all this and uh, is that there ended up being, because of uh, some jockeying that the Democrats were going to try and do, it, it backfired on them. And there ends up being one more Republican on the electoral commission than Democrats. So the Electoral Commission did hold hearings. People came in and testified. They did review those votes, but ultimately they voted along party lines. So when the Electoral Commission, it was all said and done, and that took months. The Electoral Commission goes from November to uh, the end of February. Of course, inaugurations in the 19th century were in March, March 4th, not January like they are now. Uh, the Electoral Commission votes along party lines. Ultimately, it's it's the Republicans on that commission that decide Hayes has won by one electoral vote. So of course, it looks very partisan. So that adds to the to the chaos of the situation and, and, and is part of the reason why it was contested because it was seen as a partisan decision. But of course, Congress has to accept <laughs> or deny. Uh, and, then, and then that gets us into the, you know, what, whether there was a deal or not, uh, you know, to get Hayes in, in office. Rutherford B. Hayes was the 19th president of the United States, born in Delaware, Ohio, just had a birthday, born in 1822. For well over a century, Hayes versus Tilden was the closest American election until Bush v. Gore in 2000. It is often said that Hayes went to bed on election night believing he had lost. So how did that election play out and how was it brought into a conclusion? Yeah, you know, I think Christy really hit on a lot of that, how it came to that conclusion with the Electoral Commission. And she's absolutely right. The Democratic Party wanted it 
the Electoral Commission at higher rates than the Republicans as, as shown in the uh, congressional vote for it. And the reason why they were so interested in that is because it was their chance to actually sort of upturn this thing. You know, it seemed like the momentum was swinging towards Hayes. And of course, there was a Republican in the White House and the returning boards in these states were Republican. And then it looked very promising for the Republican Party. And when they created this electoral commission, it was a real crafty way, really, to have one guy make the decision because they did not try to find balanced individuals in all 15 spots. What they did is they allowed the parties to basically choose their representatives to represent their parties. And then the Supreme Court was going to choose their own. And it happened to be uh, the two, two Democrats on the, on the Supreme Court and two Republicans who would make the decision for that final member. And the, the reason why the Democrats were so interested in this is they assumed that that final member would be David Davis, who they believed would side with the Democratic Party. Um, and he actually leaves the Supreme Court and joins as a, and becomes the senator from Illinois. So his spot is vacated and it goes to a guy named Joseph Bradley who sides with the Republican Party. And so that's why Christie was saying that it's eight to seven for the Republicans the whole way through. And what becomes really contentious is after the electoral commission makes these these judgments a number of southern democrats decide that their only recourse is to basically filibuster the return to stop the counting and to prevent hayes from being um you know confirmed and that leads to a lot of contention within the Democratic Party, which then leads to a lot of speculation from different people about if there was some sort of a compromise or a bargain on what prevented this filibuster. The, the record kind of shows, however, that the, the guy who ends the filibuster is actually the Northern Democrat Samuel Randall from Pennsylvania, who puts an end to the, even, a, even the potential for this filibuster to occur. And so uh, the count goes forward and it's confirmed. And through that eight to seven electoral commission, you know, Hayes is confirmed as the president. Christy? Well, one of the things that we get asked a lot is was, you know, there, there was kind of this myth uh, uh, in the American psyche that this was some backroom smoky deal uh, that was made to get Hayes in the White House. And, you know, we, we have a lot of the, we, we have, many messages that were sent back and forth between Hayes and uh, the Republicans. You know, there, there were meetings, there were conversations. Uh, they took place at the Wormley Hotel in Washington, D.C. There was more than one. Um, but that's where people say, oh, the deal was made that seated Hayes. Well, when you look at the historical record, there's just no evidence that a deal was ever made. Uh, there was a lot of pressure on Congress from the public. You know, months had gone by. Uh, people wanted to know who their 19th president of the United States was. The uh, Electoral Commission, even though people were arguing that it was partisan, they had reviewed all the votes. They had made their decisions. They had made that recommendation to Congress. So there was a lot of pressure on Congress to just accept the Electoral Commission's decision. Ultimately, um, we find no evidence uh, that there that there was any kind of uh, deal that put Hayes in office. It was just kind of the normal way that <laughs> government does its business, which often, you know, I think as Americans, we love for there to have been some kind of underhanded deal. But Hayes keeps telling, you know, these representatives that are meeting at the Wormley Hotel, these representatives of the Republican Party, you know, he keeps telling them, don't commit me on anything. He's essentially telling them, don't make a deal on, on my behalf. 
from the historical record, all the, the manuscript evidence that we have shows that there was no deal made. And there are academic historians that agree. I know Dustin's done some historiographical research on that. Uh, there are other academic historians that have come to that same conclusion, that there was no deal. And I do think there was some fear that, you know, because again, we're just um, a decade plus out from the Civil War um, at the time of the election, uh, wounds were still raw. They're still raw. And, you know, we're still debating in our society about what the Civil War was about. Um, it was particularly painful at that time as well. So you've got a time that's very chaotic in the country's history, trying to heal and then have this very chaotic um, presidential election. And, uh, you know, even after Rutherford was seated as president of the United States, um, people who really, you know, the Tilden or blood people that Dustin was just referencing referred to Rutherford as your fraudulency, um, you know, Rutherford Hayes is what they were calling him in the media. Um, so there was a huge backlash, you know, as much as the country just wanted a decision when, when it, Hayes was declared the winner, it, you know, there was still a lot of anger on behalf of a lot of Americans at that time. You're listening to Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters here with Ohio Humanities. And we're speaking with Christy Weininger and Dustin McLaughlin, and we're talking about contested elections. Now, you guys are in Fremont, Ohio, at the Hayes Presidential Library and Museums. A little quick sidebar. I believe right around the corner from my home here in Columbus, Ohio, Hayes had a summer home or a home down here in central Ohio. Well, he was when he was governor, he lived in Columbus. So, yes. So that was his place of residence mm -hmm. at that particular time, not the governor's mansion over on Broad Street. Right. Very interesting. It is now a bed and breakfast here in the city. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> Gonna have to come on down sometime. Gonna have to check it out. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. <laughs> Healing a divided country. We're dealing with that right now. It must have been a difficult task for pretty much any president at any particular time when healing was needed. Was there anything about President Hayes' background and temperament that prepared him for the challenges of governing a divided country? And, and I'm saying a divided country because besides Democrats and Republicans, there was the Federalist Party. We don't talk about that much. You know, a lot of folks don't have that history, but there were three major parties getting pubbed and probably a couple others, but those three major ones. So Christy, what was his temperament? What prepared it? Hayes was a very easygoing guy. Um, he, Dustin mentioned that both Hayes and Tilden, you know, had they had different temperaments, different personalities. Um, the, the fallout over the contested 1876 election could have been much different, much worse, perhaps much more contentious than it was, although it, it certainly was contentious. We see in the historical record uh, from his days at Kenyon College here in Ohio, when he was working on his undergraduate, he was very much praised for his ability to bring people together. Even if they didn't see eye to eye, he was seen as a really uh, talented negotiator. Of course, now sometimes he's criti criticized for being a little too conciliatory in some um, aspects of, of his policies. But you know, he was a uniter. And one of the things that he did when he was president, I mean, you know, he certainly wasn't um, naive about how much of the country was still in turmoil over the election. He wanted immediately to get down to the South and uh, tour there and, and meet people and give speeches and, you know, talk about how to, and these are his, his words, how to wipe out the color line, how to bring equality and how to help people heal. But his people told him, you can't go into the South right now. It's too dangerous for you. Uh, so imagine that a president of the United States not being 
essentially forbidden or, or advised against traveling in a section of, of our own country. So he went to New England instead uh, in those early, uh, early part of his presidency and carried his message of healing then, which interest, interestingly, he notes in his diary something because he was his own speechwriter and he didn't have a speechwriter. And he mentioned he, he, he needed to polish up on his speeches a little bit. He, he noted that when he got back to the White House, he, he was uh, doing things a little too much on the fly and, and, and he needed to, he wanted to put more emphasis in, on that message of, of unification that he, he was carrying to the people. But eventually he did get to the South. He got out West. He did, so he did so much traveling. His detractors called him Rutherford the Rover, but that was his way of helping people to heal. He felt he needed to get out and be seen. He needed to see the country and, um, you know, to his way of thinking, actually traveling, getting out to see the country. He was the first sitting president of the United States to get all the way out to California. But that was very important. I mean, he racked up hundreds and hundreds of, of thousands of miles and, and hundreds and thousands of, of uh, in-person conversations. Um, and, and that was his thinking. It was the best way to heal the country as much as he could have an effect on that. That's very interesting. We see even then image was everything. Dustin, President Hayes made many compromises to bridge the divide of the country and bring people together. Historians marked that election was the end of the period known as Reconstruction. And what were the consequences of those compromises during the end of Reconstruction for Hayes while he was in office? Reconstruction, it's, you know, it's that moment, of course, where, where the Northern, or I should say the federal government, um, has a heavier hand in what's going on in the South um, as those Southern states are being readmitted into the Union, especially we connect it with what's going on with uh, recently freed individuals in the South who are um, now dealing with issues of, of civil rights and voting rights and everything else, right? So Reconstruction, if we're talking specifically about federal uh, attempts in those states, I, I think it is absolutely fair to say that 1877 is the moment where that officially ends. However, I think that that does create problems because that moment obviously was being eroded from earlier, much earlier on. You know, as Southern states are being readmitted into the Union, you now have this question of what role does the federal government have in a state that's just as much of a state as a northern state at that point, right? They have their congressmen, they have their senators, they have their state constitutions. And that's the real question that's going on. It's really being battled with Grant's administration. As you see, uh, southern states um, try to assert their control and then Grant actually going in with, with federal troops and seeing public opinion really start to move against those federal attempts and in favor of local government over federal intrusion as they would see it. So by the time Hayes becomes president, it's a very tricky position. There's only two states left that still have some level of Republican um, leadership uh, in, in those states that, that Hayes could, if he wanted, try to reassert or maybe recreate all of the reconstruction that had been lost over the years. But that was a moment at, in time when simply the public will didn't seem to be there. The army appropriations weren't there for the military uh, as well. And for Hayes, it was his attempt to hopefully chart a new course. And we can talk about that new course maybe in a future question. But he's uh, attempting basically to say, well, this moment of, of military rule has kind of run its course and it's time for a new path that will hopefully produce good results. 
That's very interesting. I'm just wondering what Ohioans thought about the situation in the South at that time by 1877. This is following our proud abolitionist history and our record in the Civil War, but kind of wavered. Reconstruction support kind of wavered following the Civil War. So what was Ohio all about back then? I was going to say something about President Hayes's reaction to kind of what was going on in his mind, you know, from his diaries. But, uh, you know, it's a great question, Ron, that you just asked. So I go ahead, Dustin. <laughs> I think the best way to, for me to tackle this is just to think about the way that Hayes is running for governor. We kind of talked a minute ago about him being governor of Ohio and the way that he's running his campaigns. You know, when he's first running for governor of Ohio in the late 1860s, He's running very much on this um, anti um, or this radical Republican agenda, you know, as a congressman who was a radical Republican. And he really pushes that thought that this is what his governorship would be about. Um, by the time he's running for his third term, you know, in the mid 1870s, that's no longer a topic that he's really talking about. And he's talking much more about some of the currency issues. He's talking a lot more about, um, again, like the, the Catholic, the antiprochial school uh, topics that I mentioned earlier. And so you start to see that for whatever reason in Ohio, the politicians themselves are realizing that continually talking about the racial issue is actually not what's going to bring voters out. That's very interesting, and that's uh, that, That's another conversation in totality. Yeah, there's a lot there, because certainly, I think Ohioans were very proud that, you know, slavery had been eliminated. You know, that was, you know, a lot of the abolitionists, that was their goal. You know, certainly President Hayes is writing in his diary that he is fighting the Civil War to, number one, hold the Union together. You know, the second most important reason is to end slavery. I mean, he, you know, he says this in his diaries, but certainly there was a shift afterwards in in the hearts and minds of the people that this well slavery's done and cross that check you know cross yeah. that off the list yeah uh, racism and resolving racism was yet to be dealt with Absolutely. and I, I don't think that was even i mean people just weren't seeing that as an issue at that time now hayes was a very honest man very fair man and his honesty and fairness renewed respect for the presidential office he also promised to serve only one term, and he stuck to that promise. <laughs> so very interesting. He wasn't trying to hold on to power, not power, power. <laughs> when Hayes left the office in 1880, had the country regained that sense of normalcy, and how important was it that he upheld his promise and walked away from a second term? Because that's quite interesting. I'm, I'm, I really want to hear your, your answers to that. Yeah, that promise is actually connected to something we haven't really touched on yet in this talk, and that is connected to his pledge of what what, what they call they talked about was was civil service reform. And so for him and his argument was that presidents spend their entire first term basically firing and removing from office those who are not helpful to their campaign placing people who are helpful to them in those positions in the hopes of then extending their presidency another four years or building up their party machine. And so Hayes made the argument that I'm just going to skip that first term altogether because I want this civil service reform to go through and I'm just going to go straight to my second term and therefore uh, I will hopefully achieve all that I want to achieve in those four years. You know, it's 
most recent and our his uh, his premier biographer, his name is Ari Hugenboom, actually takes Hayes to task for that decision. That's 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 actually the one thing that Hugenboom points out about Hayes as being a being the worst decision he could make. I just like the name Hugenboom. <laughs> <laughs> it's That's fair, say, isn't it? <laughs> I'm Ron Hugenboom. <laughs> <laughs> but but he makes the argument that you know Hayes was like in your question you were talking about normalcy and you know we're coming from at least one term where Grant seems to have lost control of so many of his cabinet members and there seems to be all this corruption. You know, after a contentious election in 1876 and then spending two years, you know, kind of like what we just had with the most recent administration where we did have this commission that was looking into any improper action, uh, Hayes had the same thing. It was called the Potter Commission where they were looking in to see what, what did he do to basically bargain or cheat his way into the presidency and the commission determined nothing they found nothing but but it was democratic led by the way yeah actually that's what they found was that tilden's uh i think it was tilden's like um nephew Nephew. actually attempted to to commit some bribery to get people to vote for him uh some of those uh, electoral commissioners to switch sides and so you have that actually is what they discover but Anyway, after that commission is finally determined, it sees its verdict uh, to the public, Hayes does seem to bring some normalcy back, you know, and, and I think that people, I think Mark Twain makes this comment that Hayes is going to go down as one of our greatest presidents. Um, there was this sort of like belief that Hayes was um, really bringing at least some quiet and peace to, to, a, to a situation that was so volatile. And so that's why I think Hugenboom, and maybe if you agree with his interpretation, might have actually seen him walking away so quickly as almost undermining the things that he could have accomplished if he would have perhaps been remembered, as we often seem to are removed from our collective memories, uh, one-term presidents, uh, perhaps he could have uh, done a little bit more. Now, Hayes would say, look, here we had people who did not like this supposedly corrupt administration before me. I was elected under dubious terms, and yet a Republican replaced me. You know, I was through my actions, is maybe what he was thinking, is I bring some, so much normalcy to the Republican Party that it led the way for a Garfield president. So I think for Hayes, it was, uh, he probably felt validated by that. I just want to let you guys know that I went to Rutherford B. Hayes Junior High School way back in the day. (laughs) Did you learn all about him there? A little bit, yes, yes, but more so when I got down here to Columbus. So um, I have a little bit of history, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. We're just about at the end. We're going to just give you our final question, but you know, this has really been a wonderful conversation here. We're talking about the lessons now that we can pull from the election of 1876. I'm going to let Christy answer that. I feel like I've talked a lot here. So <laughs> you've been doing great, Dustin. <laughs> well, you know, I think certainly, I, and we've kind of touched on this already. Um, I think a lot of, I think as contentious as things were in 1876, they could have been a lot less had there been personalities at play who wanted more attention, who wanted to be out there 
there in the media. I mean, both Hayes and Tilden set back. They let parties work it out. They let Congress do its job. They let the Electoral Commission do its job. You know, they let our democratic processes take precedence over their personal interests. And and to them, I think as much as both of them wanted to be president, they also believed in our democracy and in our constitution. And so that is what they let go to work, not them. And um, I, I think, again, as contentious as it was, things could have gone more, more traumatic for the general public at the time, and maybe even some more damage to our democracy had they gone for, for a bigger play. Want to add anything, Dustin, to that? I absolutely agree with uh, with what she said there. I think that the record clearly shows. I mean, there were there were um, Democrats that were literally asking Tilden to take the oath of office, you know, and yeah, and his refusal to do that, you know, and then Hayes. Um, I believe every indication from his personal correspondence and the fact that the night after the election, he was kind of willing to concede it to Tilden anyway. He um, does in his diary, in his private he, writings. He <laughs> and, and the interviewers who actually interview him the day the day after. And so I think I think that what you have are two guys that if the role was reversed, both of them would have done the same thing. They would have yeah. stepped aside. They would have let the process win out over their personal ambition. We've been talking about contested elections with the 19th president of the United States, Rutherford B. Hayes. This has been Perfecting Democracy and Why It Matters, and we've been speaking with Christy Winninger and Dustin McLaughlin with the Hayes Presidential Library and Museums in Fremont, Ohio. We want to thank you for coming on and enlightening us. It's been a wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Perfecting Democracy, Why It Matters has been made possible by a grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, which is being administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils. The opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Ohio Humanities or the National Endowment for the Humanities. To hear additional stories in this series, visit www.ohiohumanities.org. 